The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, we'll dig into the data from Google searches to new home sizes and discuss what the signs actually mean for markets. And the bond rally continues. Why the insatiable demand? And why is the U.S. Treasury seriously considering issuance of ultra-long bonds? And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. Sarah, tell the people about our uh, hotline. So we have this new hotline. It's the Bloomberg Podcast Hotline. As you know, we always do our craziest thing I ever saw in markets segment at the end of the show. But now you can become a part of it, too. So call us, leave us a message, let us know what you saw that you thought was crazy, or even just ask us a question. That number is 646 324 And we may even play a recording on the show. Sarah, before we introduce our guests, I've got a crackpot theory I want to share with you. What is that? You ready for a crack? I mean, I'm ready for it. To be sure, I have several crackpot theories. I know you do, but let's hear the one for today. The one today is, I, I think the way you make your name on Wall Street, I mean, sure, you can beat the market with your stock picks. You can be the best trader in the world. But I The way I think you really make your name is if you have to be a good writer. I'll give you some example. Warren Buffett, I think, is famous as much for his catchy writings in his his letters to shareholders, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Bill Gross. I don't know if you've ever read his monthly commentary when he was still writing it. Very, very catchy stuff. Peter Lynch, the great uh, fund manager of the 80s, excellent writer. And this is all a way of leading up to me saying uh, one of my favorite writers here uh, on one of my favorite Wall Street writers is is a guest on our show today. He's uh, a veteran of uh, markets, started out at Credit Suisse First Boston, covering the auto industry as an analyst, spent a few years with uh, the legendary hedge fund manager, Steve Cohen. Uh, for about a decade, he was the chief market strategist at Convergex. But most excitingly, he started his own firm about two years ago called Data Trek Research. Uh, his name is Nick Colas. Nick, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. And another good writer on the show today. <laughs> good. What a, what a great one. A lot of good writers. <laughs> another excellent writer. Well, you get, you, your job is primarily writing. So My it's, job is about adjectives. It's yeah. ad- adjectives. <laughs> and that is Emily Barrett from our Bonds and, and FX team. Uh, welcome to the show, Emily. Thanks for having me. And Nick, I wanted to start with you. I, we have all a stack of your research notes from the past month or so, and we're going to get into them a little bit. But I wanted to start just kind of high level of sort of how you're thinking about the market these days. Um, 
I get the sense from some of your recent reports that you're, I don't want to say bearish, but cautious about the equity market right now. Is that is that safe? That's very fair. You know, yeah. we were positive on markets uh, through the first part of the year and saw declining rates and fairly stable earnings as a good backdrop for S&P performance, and it was. The next, this month and the next couple of months will be a lot tougher, though, and it's both a matter of seasonality and the basic trends going on now, and more than anything, and I guess we'll talk about this, is the fear of recession as being factored in by the yield curve and other things. So it's going to be a choppier time. Right. So what's that, how could that manifest? Just more up and down days like we saw in August? I mean, is that the sort of the new normal for the time being? It absolutely is. You know, we went a very, very long stretch without seeing even 1% days on the S&P. I think we had a seven-week stretch going in through July and early August where there were no 1% days. Very unusual. So we'll see a lot more of those. A VIX closer to normal, a lot more churn. You know, if you look at the last couple of weeks with August, just expect that to continue through September and October. And I'll add to that, we've seen 11 1% days just this month. That's now more than December. So that just goes to show the swings that we have been seeing. Something that really stood out to me in your research, Nick, was that you look and track on Google Trends the amount of searches for the word or the two words, Dow Jones. Why is that? Why do you look for these searches and what are the implications for what that could potentially mean for the economy and the markets? Yeah, I mean, the issue with Dow Jones is people don't really Google S&P 500 Mm -hmm. when they want to see what the market's doing. When regular Main Street Americans want to see, hey, why is the market down today? They Google Dow Jones. And it's a wonderful indicator of how much attention the public is paying on the volatility in the stock market. And we looked at that, and you can do this on your own. Google Trends, just plug in Dow Jones, you'll get the data. And the troublesome thing is the volatility in August is now higher, showing higher Google Trends searches for Dow Jones than back in May when we had the last bout of volatility. It isn't quite back to where it was in December when we had that huge puke going into the year. But definitely people are paying attention to this volatility. And that's worrisome because even if you don't own stock, you know that if your company's stock price is down, your risk of layoff goes up. And going into holiday season, that's another kind of worrisome thing. So to me, it's a transmission mechanism between the volatility of the stock market and consumer spending. When you see people paying attention to stock market volatility, you have to start worrying about consumer spending going into the fourth quarter. So the searches for Dow Jones recently were even higher than May, and and was that almost as high as December? I wonder if the clustering of them so close together, you know, is is also worrisome. Um, you know, it's one thing to have one sort of a correction in a year, but to have have a couple back to back to back like this, uh, does that sort of send an ominous sign going forward? It does, because if you look at the data from December of last year and then January of this year, interest in Dow Jones just plummeted once the market began to recover. People Mm -hmm. said, okay, things are fine. If you do see another couple of months of volatility and still elevated Google searches, to my mind, it's a worrisome sign going into holiday because People might rightly think, okay, if the stock market's volatile, perhaps my job's at risk, and we got to start spending a little bit less money. I've got to say you inspired me, and I looked up on Google Trends searches for recession, too, and I found that actually this month we're on pace to see the most Google Trends searches for recession since all the way back in 2009, which I thought was astounding. Does this go back to the discussion of talking yourself into a recession? People get worried. People talk themselves into being scared and then not going out and spending, potentially? Yeah, that is definitely the narrative. I'll tell you that I've never actually seen it work. And I, I mean, I covered the autos in the 90s, so cyclicality was a major issue. I mean, you know, sort of to cut to the chase about this recession conversation, 
the yield curve is spooking everybody, and I guess we'll talk more about that. But to my mind, it's not the most important indicator for a future recession. And that the real important indicator is gasoline prices and oil prices. Even though we've never had a recession without an inverted yield curve first, we haven't had a recession without oil prices doubling in a year since back to 1973. So in order to see a recession, and this is a more logical conduit for me, in order to see a recession or believe in a recession, I think you've got to see gas prices spike, and they obviously haven't. So if we see Google searches for cheap gas, then we'll know, uh, we'll know to look out. Believe it or not, we do that. We, <laughs> it's amazing. We, we do look at that. Cheap gas, coupons. Ammunition and canned goods. and. Uh... <laughs> it's funny. Prepping has actually declined in popularity in the last two years. Oh, yeah. You've been tracking that? We track everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, Emily, as Nick said, the, the yield curve has a lot of people spooked. Uh, avid listeners to this podcast know we've sort of beaten that topic to death. But... Um, you know, especially low long end yields uh, this week, uh, 10 year yield at a little more than one and a half percent. I think, Nick, according to one of your reports, it's only been something like 40 days in the past since the 60s that we've seen a lower yield than this. I mean, it's crazy. And Emily, you've been writing about um, and reporting on this issue of the Treasury actually looking at long, ultra long bonds now. So, mm-hmm either 50-year or 100-year uh, maturity treasuries. Tell us about that reporting. Is it Does this sound like something that could possibly happen? Well, look, it would make a lot of sense for the Treasury to try and lock in record low funding for you know a 50- or 100-year bond at this point. And surely, I mean, some people have said, look, everybody's doing it. Why wouldn't the U.S. do it as well, right? But I think that there are, I mean... First of all, this is the second time in this administration that this idea has been floated. So it was floated back in 2017. And at that point, TBAC, which are kind of the the whisperers to the Treasury about what uh, the market wants and what the market can take, um, was very cool on the idea. And they don't seem to have really changed their tone that much at this point, although it's hard to say until we see them actually gather and comment on it. Um, but, you know, we've done, some of my colleagues have done some fantastic reporting on this, Liz Kevin McCormick, um, Alex Harris as well has written about this. It's, um, you know, what we need to see is, despite the fact that there is this global hunger for duration and for yield wherever it shows up, you just still find that people are saying, well, we don't need to disrupt kind of the regular and reliable performance of Treasury issuance. We don't want to see the Treasury doing something that is kind of opportunistic, um, to try and hit a low yield at this point in time that might end up being disruptive for the rest of the market. Well, I, you know, I can only imagine uh, uh, groups of pension fund managers and insurance companies, you know, hiring a, a marching band to go perform at <laughs> Stephen Nugent's house to say, we want these, right? I mean, so what What would be the downside? Why Why would the Treasury not necessarily want to to provide these securities. I mean, I, and correct me if I'm wrong. Wouldn't wouldn't you assume the pensions and the and the insurance companies would be would be all over an ultra long? Well, I mean, you would to a certain extent because they're buy and hold investors. They want to match their liabilities. They want to make sure that they have enough money to pay out when people retire. And obviously, Pimco did a great piece not so long ago about that being a driver of negative yields globally. Right, this insane demand. The Treasury wants to. I mean, look. Who knows? We can't really say that. There was a great interview by uh, by one of our colleagues in, in D.C., Saleya, who actually spoke to Mnuchin. And, uh, and, you know, they say they're seriously considering this. And But it's clear that the Treasury wants to keep raising this as an issue, right? This is there's, It's compelling. Um, for investors in it, you know, it, it seems like it would be a great match. It seems like you would see global investors want to pour in. Global investors don't tend to be huge participants in sort of 
uh, US long duration, you know, they're kind of a portion of the buyers, but they also have to satisfy, you know, asset managers here in the US, which is a sort of a compelling market as well. And so, you know, while it might be great for buy and hold investors, it's just difficult to always rely on, you know, for instance, they may have their funding levels sorted out at this point in time, but they're not later on. There's this cyclicality element that might sort of disturb demand and make it less difficult. And the problem is, if there isn't demand, sufficient demand for this, it ends up on dealer balance sheets. Dealer balance sheets don't have a lot of room on them at the moment. And it also means that, you know, sort of costs across the curve could rise for taxpayers. So, you know, that's one thing. I mean, we're yet to see, we're doing some reporting to try and see what uh, what global investors really think about this. Um, you know, so we'll see what happens. Nick, are you buying a 100-year treasury? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, personally, no. <laughs> it's an, it is an interesting question because opportunistically it does make a ton of sense. But you know, the dollar is a reserve currency for a reason. It's because this system is extremely stable. And if you look at the folks that have done 100-year bonds, not exactly a great set of comps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, that's true. Well, I have to ask. You mentioned the dollar, and I want to bring it to actually dollar price action that we have seen. And I feel like we discuss this every single week because it seems like everyone is, or many people are always calling to find a bump in the dollar rally. But yet again this week, you see the dollar rallying, the Bloomberg dollar spot index touching the highest since 2017. Do you see this relentless dollar rally just continuing from here? Yes. The short answer is yes. There's no reason why it shouldn't. If the economies of the world are slowing down and you're looking for risk-free assets or a more stable place to invest, the U.S. is it. The dollar is it. And the reserve currency status seems rock solid and there's no viable competitor for the next 10 years at least. So yes, no reason why not. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Nick, I wanted to run through a few of uh, some of the, the factoids from some of your recent uh, research because some, some really fascinating stuff. And I love the way you sort of look at uh, data points uh, that the rest of, uh, rest of us has, have missed. The, the one I'm really fascinated with is you uh, look at the proportion of households in the country that are uh, one-person households and how it affects then the average 
uh, home size being built. Walk us through this research and sort of how you apply uh, what you found out in, in these stats to, to investment ideas. Yeah, so this is a very long-term kind of analysis, and it basically goes like this. The beginning of the 1960s, the average household in America had roughly 3.3 people, according to the census. And the average household size was roughly 1,700 square feet, a little bit less. And over the last 50, 60 years, the number of people per household has declined from 3.3 to 2.5, the biggest single factor being people who live alone. It used to be 13% back in the 60s. Now it's well over 20%. And you're more likely to walk into a house in America and see one person than four people, which is sort of the traditional nuclear family versus the person living alone. At the same time, the size of houses has increased from 1,700 square feet to 2,700 square feet at the peak in 2015. And to me, it's like the American consumption story. Bigger houses, lower household densities, and since people living together tend to share assets, the less sharing, the more consumption we need. So it's been a huge tailwind for the American consumer and the American economy for the last 50, 60 years, basically the entire post-World War II expansion. But now it's beginning to change because land prices have gotten so high that new houses are now actually getting smaller again. And they typically only get smaller in recessions as home builders shift to smaller homes. But if you think about the aging of the population, this propensity to live alone, and a bunch of other factors, to me it's kind of a cautionary tale about what the American economy can grow at over the next 10, 20, 30 years if we no longer have this tailwind of fewer people and bigger houses. Right. And that's a trend that you think should keep going for a while is, is smaller yes. homes, you know, fewer fewer people in the household. If you look at populations in Europe and Japan, for example, there are a couple of years of us in terms of average uh, age of a, a citizen. They're already seeing higher levels. In Japan, I think it's 35% of households are one-person households. Wow. And it's about, I want to say, 35 in Europe, uh, both trending higher. So we're a little bit behind, but it seems like we're going to catch up. If for no other reason than the average mortality of a man is five years less than the average mortality of a woman. Something I find really interesting to that point, though, is that this year we've seen home builder stocks really just take off. I mean, you look at the S&P home building index, it's up something like 40 percent this year. And yes, a large part of that is due to falling interest rates as well. Would you say that people who are really buying into this story are maybe missing out on a big part of the picture? No, because I think the you know you have to look at what the fundamentals are. And yeah. for home builders, it's interest rates. And that's totally fine. And that group got creamed over the past couple of years, so it should have had a bounce back. Look, there will always be a home building industry, and I think that industry has done a good job, more than anything, of managing their cost structures and managing their buying of land to be sustainably profitable, because they obviously got destroyed during the crisis. And so the number one thing that those companies have to do to improve their valuations, which are still quite low, is prove profitability through a downturn. And they're doing a very good job of managing cost structures and building plans and growth plans so that when the next recession comes, they don't have to to um, you know, go to banks or go to the credit markets. They can sub be self-sustaining, and over time, that'll earn them a higher valuation. As a cyclical analyst, that really resonates with me. That's how you earn a higher valuation over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, Emily, it all gets back to interest rates, doesn't it? And you know, Absolutely. <laughs> when did you last refinance? When did you refinance? I wish, right. I wish I had just done this. I know. It's getting tempting again. So you, you talk to uh, fixed-income investors all day. Um, what is the mood out there? Are... are people coming around to the idea that rates are low forever now. I mean, the the whole market seemed to be on the wrong foot when the year began. Everyone was expecting 
the Fed to hike and, and rates to be, you know, uh, 10-year yield to be above 3%, maybe yeah. 4%. What's sort of the, the temperature on the street now? I mean, I'm kind of really interested. We always see this very different sort of glass off empty, glass off fill, full attitude between equities and fixed income investors. And I have to say, a lot of the people I speak to are very down in the mouth about what's happening at the moment in terms of the, the prospect of higher yields, of, of volatility. Like volatility is obviously coming back in the market, but they just don't see that much opportunity for yields to lift from where they are now. And so there's been more and more of that sort of drumbeat of, well, how low can it go? You keep asking this question and it keeps breaking through every single barrier that people have been talking about. But the interesting thing about this is, you know, now we've got the Fed cutting rates again. You would think people would be emboldened, you know, heading out into, okay, we've got some yieldy stuff out there. We've got some emerging markets. And I'm really interested to hear so many people saying, yeah, it's close to the end of the cycle. And it's been close to the end of the cycle for the last, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's really hard, I think, for a lot of investors out there to know where to step next. Nick, what's your view? Obviously, it's very difficult to to time the markets and as Emily said, many people are looking at this saying, well, it has to come to an end sometime soon. We're at the end of the cycle. Do you believe that? Well, the way I look at it is just, you know, so I'll give you an example. Look at what the 10-year bond has done for the last year. As of last week, it was about 13.3% after inflation. Over the last, since 1928, the Treasury, 10-year Treasury has uh, returned 2% after inflation on average through that time frame. And the standard deviation of those returns is roughly nine points. So we are well above one standard deviation in terms of trailing one-year returns net of inflation. And typically, and if you go back and look at the history, you don't make much more money than that over the next year. So if you're buying treasuries here, statistically, historically says you're not going to make a whole lot more going forward. And there have been rafts of people that have died on the hill of calling the, you know, the top in the treasury markets. I'm not trying to do that. But just statistically speaking, if you own long bonds here, history says you are not going to make a whole lot more for the next 12 months. You might not lose very much, but this has been a dot-com size rally in treasuries. And you have to sort of put that in perspective and, 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 and really respect the fact that if you're hanging on here, your best case scenario is flat. Right. Especially when you look at money market funds are practically yielding more than the 30 year right now. It's like, why wouldn't you hang out in cash basically and uh, see what happens, I guess. Or dumbbell it and say the S&P yields more than the 30 right. year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. That's... And and by the way, dividends never go negative. Right. 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 Good point. Good point. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Nick, last as a segue into our craziest thing I ever saw in markets. Earlier on in the show, you said that you guys pretty much track everything. What would be the craziest thing that you guys say that you track? Well, we do a quarterly thing we call off-the-grid economic indicators, where we try to go as far afield as possible. And I'd say the two or three that sort of get the most attention, one is our bacon cheeseburger index, which looks at the price through the CPI data of how much it costs to make a bacon cheeseburger. And it's actually been a kind of a reliable leading indicator of where inflation goes. And it it does actually point to some deflation coming up. Mm -hmm. So it does support that basic narrative. Um, The other one is pickup truck sales, large pickup trucks. And those are bought by mostly small businesses and some individuals and heavily reliant on gasoline prices. But when you see that start to roll over, you know that there's some worry among small businesses about capital investments. And, and thankfully, so far, small, you know, large pickup truck sales have been pretty good. So, you know, one of those things that tells us we could talk ourselves into a recession, as we talked about earlier, but the actual data doesn't support that we're about to roll over, you know, into the next recession. Well, I think that brings us to our traditional segment, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. 
Unfortunately, Emily had to run. She's got a hot scoop she's working on. So uh, stand by your terminal to uh, find out what that is. But Sarah, let's start with you. I trust that you have uh, surely seen something crazy this week. I'll try to make it crazy enough for both me and Emily. Um, (laughs) and And I do think it is pretty crazy. So it went viral in certain areas of the Internet. But this week, there was a Steve Jobs lookalike found in Egypt, and someone (laughs) took a picture of him. Uh, They posted it on the Internet, and they put it next to a picture of Steve Jobs himself from back in the glory days. And they actually look very much alike. And people were really spewing conspiracy theories saying, oh, my gosh, is, is Steve Jobs back? Is he alive? Now, obviously, all conspiracy theories on the Internet. Um, but if you Google it, you look it up, you will certainly find some of them. And they're very interesting. That is that is my favorite place for conspiracy theories. Egypt so, or the Internet? The Internet. The internet. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm surprised Apple didn't rise like 5% that day. They're actually <laughs> out this week. No, I mean, we, we could say that it's correlated. <laughs> all right, Nick, that's tough to top. You got, Can you top that one for craziest thing you saw in markets this week? I did see a guy that looked like Elvis <laughs> in Cairo about a decade ago. Well, a lot of people are joking around because supposedly in the back of the photo, there was someone that looked like Elvis. And now they're saying, oh, they're in cahoots. They're in this together in Egypt. Steve Jobs and Elvis. Anything's possible. No, my <laughs> my weirdest thing is prosaic, but I, I really I think it merits it. This rally in treasuries is something absolutely historic. Like we are going to look back on this period and either say it was literally the beginning of the end because rates are all going to zero. Mm-hmm. And this is when the world realized it. Or we're going to look back in a couple of years and say, what the hell were we thinking? <laughs> I, I think that's a safe, uh, a safe option there. It's only One two extremes. Two. <laughs> Nowhere in the middle. No, they're not staying here. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and uh, we did get a call into the hotline, I believe from our pal Luke Kawa on the Cross Asset team. Let's hear what he had to say. We, we all know that Jerome Powell, he, is, he faces a lot of critics, both uh, punching up and punching down when it comes to the job he's doing at the Fed. I uh, might interest you to know that he's not the only person in his household that feels this way. His wife is actually the chair of the Chevy Chase Village. And right now, as the Washington Post reports, there's a very, very fierce debate over the dog park there. And apparently, Alyssa Leonard, which is uh, the name of Powell's wife, is just getting it from all sides, from neighbors who are on the uh, adjacent to the park and are just seeing that the dogs are there too early barking. They're having meeting after meeting over it. And there's really no solution to this problem that fits all sides. So, you know, when the Powells are sitting around the dinner table, they've got a lot of complaints uh, pretty much coming at them from all sides on how they're doing their jobs. <laughs> that was good. This is a couple that has to have thick skin. That's right. That's right. Jay Powell's like, oh, you wouldn't believe what Trump said to me today. And she's like, you wouldn't believe what happened at the dog park. No. As a, a frequenter of dog parks, I, I, I will say there's there can be a lot of drama there. Yeah. I, maybe because my dog's a jerk and he's always picking fights, but there there's certainly a lot of trauma. Maybe Bill Dudley has a point of view on the dog park. <laughs> that's, that's right. And he'll be very vocal about it. Yes, too. that's right. No one brought up Bill Dudley basically saying the Fed should try to stop President Trump from getting reelected. That is a crazy thing for the ages, I think. Let me just give you two of the uh, submissions over Twitter for craziest thing of the week. Uh, one is uh, this character, Twiggy Sunday. Sarah, he's a avid listener of the, of the podcast. He says the Popeye's chicken sandwich is the craziest thing he's seen in the week. I, I, I got to agree. That's pretty crazy to hype over that thing. It is pretty unbelievable. I have to say, I, I know many people who have gone out and bought both 
Popeye's chicken sandwiches and Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches over the past week so they can actually do a taste test themselves. <laughs> Nick's probably got some kind of chicken sandwich indicator. Index? That, that yeah. Is. <laughs> I like the bacon Along- cheese index, uh, indicator, though. It's more diverse than the Big Mac indicator because you got, you got your hog prices. Chicken's there, a huge issue. The average American eats a chicken every two weeks. Wow. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> So think about how many chickens, you know, are slaughtered for food in the U.S. every year. Every there's three. Weeks. There's 320 million Americans. Do the math. That's 700 million oh. chickens a month. Usually we talk about vegan meat on the show, a lot of Beyond Meat lately. So we're really going the opposite direction <laughs> this time. <laughs> One more from Twitter. Uh, Keon Salahizadeh. Um, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But he says it's a close tie between Trump calling Jerome Powell an enemy of the state and the S&P yield beating the 30-year yield. And I, that, to your point, that is pretty crazy that the S&P dividend yield is, is higher than the 30-year Treasury yield. Um, so good, good contribution there from Kean. And I'll give you mine. Uh, Sarah, we, we have to confess that both of our craziest things came from our friend uh, Vildana Hyrick. Who this is, girl stays up at night looking for crazy she things really in the does. markets. I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to have her back on the show for just a, a, an all craziest thing we've seen in markets uh, episode. But she points out the story Tracy Alloway wrote. She found these holders of 100-year-old Chinese debt uh, that was defaulted upon, I think, these were issued in like 1911. So before uh, the founding of the Communist People's Republic of China, um, something like a, a trillion dollars worth of this debt was in the market um, and it's defaulted on. But there are holders of these old certificates who are lobbying the Trump White House to make China pay up on this uh, 100-year-old bond certificates. Um, I don't think they'll have much luck, but uh, they certainly had luck in getting into the craziest thing of the week. We'll bring sure. it up in the next call, the next <laughs> that's, talk. That's right. <laughs> that, that'll be a point yeah, of contention. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but with that said, so many crazy things this week. Nick Polis, thank you so much for joining the show. And of course, we have to thank our very own Emily Barrett as well. What Goes Out will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Data Trek Research is at Data Trek MB. And Emily Barrett is at Not That ECB. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.